so used to seeing things that, in my opinion, aren't quite right in our treatment of animals. Yeah, the less we eat, the less violence is being done, and the less destruction to the environment. Everyone eats, and everyone has to make a moral decision every time that we sit down to the table. Welcome to Animal Voices, Western Canada's only radio program dedicated to animal advocacy and compassionate living. This is 100.5 FM CFRO Vancouver Co-op Radio on unceded and ancestral Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh territories in so-called Vancouver, British Columbia. Today is Friday, September 18th, 2020, and I'm your host, Leah. On this week's episode, we will start out with a short interview with Linda Bacher of Wildlife Rescue in Burnaby. Linda speaks to the current wildfires in the Pacific Northwest and the challenges they present to free-living animals who are being displaced from their homes. This will be followed by an audio recording from YouTuber Mexi on chilling climate change scenarios and how eating plants can help. Lastly, our feature guest, Ren Hurst. Ren spent nearly 20 years carving out a successful career in the professional horse world before a radical shift in awareness caused her to change everything. She left behind everything she knew and created a sanctuary for the animals in her care, wrote a book about the experience, and continues to explore the depths of what she's uncovered about domestication and trauma. She's joining us today to speak to honoring the consent of other animals and her journey in breaking down these patterns of domestication in both herself and in her relationships with others. Downtown Eastside Women's Center has been helping self-identified women and their children for decades, but today, the DEWC needs your help. Due to the COVID-19 crisis, the center has had to cancel its annual in-person fundraisers, depriving the center of crucial financial resources. Services such as hot meals, clothing, showers, and secure mailboxes are now in jeopardy. To find out how you can help the Downtown Eastside Women's Center, please visit their website at dewc.ca. That's dewc.ca. Thank you for joining me today on Animal Voices. It's wonderful to be speaking with you today. If you would please introduce yourself and Wildlife Rescue as well. Hi, yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, my name is Linda Bocker. I'm um, a co-executive director at the Wildlife Rescue Association of BC. We are located in Burnaby, where we run a uh, wildlife uh, rehabilitation center. Wonderful, thank you. So today I wanted to speak to you about the wildfires that are running rampant through the entire Pacific Northwest and the effect that this is having on free-living animals yeah, as you can imagine, um, we t- at, a, at the Wildlife Rescue, we see a lot of birds. So uh, I'll, I'll talk about uh, wild birds uh, specifically. So humans have symptoms from these, from the smoke and the, and the fire. So, uh, you know, uh, difficulty breathing, sore throat, headaches. So it really has an effect on our bodies. So animals will see the same thing. With birds, uh, if they're closely located to the fires, uh, they have the uh, freedom to fly away. So that's positive. But right now, this season is migratory uh, bird season. So all the birds are flying uh, south for their uh, migration. And um, this is one of the uh, routes that they that they use. So they will alter their routes, uh, most likely to avoid the fires, um, which can cause uh, a number of things. Uh, usually they follow food sources on their migration. So they might have uh, more difficulty finding food on their migration, finding resting spots. So it might be harder for them to migrate and they might get emaciated along the way. Also, they could be, because of this displacement, um, they might end up in urban environments and they might not be used to that. So they could be hitting windows, hitting vehicles, uh, get attacked by cats that they're not used to uh, coexisting with. Uh, so lots of different difficulties that they could encounter. 
and at the wildlife rescue, we might see some birds that have respiratory uh, issues uh, because it will affect their lungs. It could uh, cause respiratory infections as well. Or we could just see a higher intake of all the other issues like cat attacks and hitting windows just because birds are avoiding the, the wildfire areas. Thank you. So what about for animals who aren't birds who have a harder time escaping the fires and the smoke? Yeah, they will definitely have a harder time uh, escaping, like you said. I mean, I can mainly talk about birds. So, but yeah, just like like we are mammals and we uh, we can see the effects. So um, definitely, uh, wild mammals will as well, and their habitat will be destroyed. Um, and some wildfires are natural, so sometimes it's a natural process which has positive effects. But this is. Uh, most likely, you know, bigger fires and also uh, because of climate change. So it's not like a one-off thing. Uh, we might see this more and more often, um, which will be hard on their on the habitat. So how do you expect prepare for future wildfire seasons to better serve the animals who are being displaced? Well, we always... Um, react to whatever's happening like uh, at, a, at the wildlife rescue we see events throughout the year that are unusual and we have some level of preparedness and we have lots of uh, wonderful volunteers that help us with that so if there's an oil spill we will react to that if there's uh, you know a disease outbreak we will react to that so we definitely can handle um, events like this so if there's a larger intake of birds because of the wildfires, we will definitely be able to handle that. Do you know of many long-term effects that these kinds of fires and smoke will have on animals who might come into your care? Yeah, that's that's the question. It's a really good question. I'm I don't know. It could have yeah effects on their health, long-term uh, reproductive effects, but uh, yeah, I couldn't say for sure. Do you help other domestic? captive animals who are needing help with natural disaster type health crises? Right. Yeah, we are not permitted to uh, take in any domestic uh, or captive animals. Uh, we Our permits are specifically for wildlife and uh, it's, it's kind of important to keep wildlife separate from domestic animals. So uh, fortunately, we have the SPCA here that takes in lots of domestic animals and tries to help them in many ways. Is there anything that you want to share with us? Anything that you want people to know about wild animals who might be struggling with this displacement at this time? Well, uh, there there are ways that uh, the public can always help wildlife, uh, which is year round. But because we might see more wild wildlife around because they're displaced, uh, to make sure to you know clean up any garbage litter. So they don't get entangled in it or don't get any contamination on their feathers. Keep your cats indoors if at all possible. And if you notice birds hitting your windows, it might be time to put decals on your windows to make sure the birds can actually see the windows. And uh, if you feel like there's an issue and you're not sure with, with a wild animal, you can always give the Wildlife Rescue a call. We have a helpline uh, that's open seven days a week, and uh, we're glad to answer all your questions. Great. Yeah, thank you very much. Okay, thank you so much. The following audio recording is from YouTuber Mexi. The episode is called Chilling Climate Change Scenarios and How Eating Plants Can Help. You can find Mexi on multiple social media platforms as well as on her podcast called Vegan Vanguard. Just a bit of background about me. So the only reason I ever started to study political economy like in so much depth is because I was in uh, environmental studies. Um, I've always been an environmentalist and I started looking at you know environmental studies and environmental anthropology in my undergrad. And then in my two graduate degrees, I went into geography. Um, but you realize very quickly that you can't study or like you can't understand or talk about environmental crises or environmental change without looking at political economy. Like you can't disentangle what's happening with the environment with political economy. So yeah, I guess in geography, I study, you know, grounded examples of neoliberal policies being put into action in you know different communities um so looking at like the socio-environmental and 
economic and political impacts of these policies. So I've made another video called Capitalism and the Environment and I'll link it below so please do check that out if you're like wondering where I stand on all of that. Um, but today I'm not going to talk so much about the political economic causes and actually just look at like physically what is happening out there, like what is actually going on with the climate and how is it going to impact all of us. But diving in before we look at some of the actual scenarios, there's like a few important things to note to kind of understand what's going on out there. So number one is the latent warming effect and that's the fact that like everything that we pump up into the air, like all the greenhouse gases, we won't feel the full effect of all of that warming for quite some time. So it could be decades before we actually feel the full effect of all the gases that we have put up there right now. This table shows like the relative warming potential of the different greenhouse gases and you'll see that like CO2 is actually quite low on the list. Um, so the reason that we care about CO2 the most is because that's the gas that we're you know, pumping out at the greatest volume. So that's the one that's like most significant in terms of climate change. But other gases like methane and nitrous oxide are very significant in the, in the sense that their potential for warming is so, so, so much greater. So 25 times for methane, um, which is important to note. So keep that in your mind for later in this discussion. And the second important thing to note is the fact that there are several positive feedback loops that can actually accelerate climate change and um, potentially make it self-sustaining. Glaciers melting is an example of a positive feedback loop because um, glaciers are basically anything like any surface that's light or like white basically um, or just certain surfaces they have a very high albedo and what that means is that they reflect a lot of the sun's rays back out into the atmosphere and so less is being trapped down um, down at the, the Earth's surface, but when, as they melt, as they melt and melt and melt, they lose that albedo effect, and so more heat is trapped down um, at the surface of the Earth, which contributes to more melting of the glaciers, which contributes to less of this albedo, and so on and so on and so forth, right? So you can see that it's just like a self-perpetuating cycle, and that's what a positive feedback loop means. Um, another one is the melting permafrost, and this is a, a really um, alarming positive feedback loop because it releases methane, and as we just saw, methane is a 25 times stronger greenhouse gas than CO2. So you've probably or maybe heard that like there's kind of like this scientific consensus globally that we should keep our warming under two degrees Celsius by 2100 to avoid, you know, some of the more catastrophic potential impacts of climate change. And I mean, like some areas are already being hit really hard and like there are some places where, you know, there, there are already a lot of environmental refugees and there are some like low island states like Tuvalu and the Maldives that are, you know, at risk of going underwater completely very soon and so they're trying to think of like exit strategies and like, you know, where can we go to become a state within a state somewhere else, like it's really, um, really messed up. So because of this latent warming and because of these positive feedback loops, our reductions have to be significant and fast, like very, very fast. And when I say significant, um, like they're saying like to stabilize greenhouse gas levels um, at like a safe level. And it's not even like, it's not even agreed what a safe level is. Like right now we've already blown past 400 parts per million, which is like a big milestone. And a lot of people obviously are saying that we should have, we should be keeping it to 350. There's like a whole 350.org movement. Um, now they're saying like, well, maybe we can try for 550. But anyway, in order to stabilize at like safe levels, industrialized nations would have to cut their emissions like up to 90% by 2100. Or like pretty much just like, just cut them off right now. Just just like, just stop, right? People are saying that like, okay, from what we've already put up there, like the latent warming plus like positive feedback or whatever, um, we're on course to go up to like four degrees Celsius. Um, actually, people are saying up to six degrees Celsius, which would just be like, okay, forget it. Like just, if it's six degrees, like forget it, <laughs> like forget the world. Yeah, they're saying, okay, two degrees is possible, and of course, you know, scientists are like, they don't want to sound alarmist, like, you know, they don't want to be cut out of the conversation. So it's like two degrees is possible if we made like significant change right now. But even like everything we've already done so far could still push us to four degrees Celsius. Um, or, you know, it, e even if we hit our targets, 
uh, for reductions, we could still be at, at four degrees Celsius. So let's just take a look at what those kind of worlds would look like. Two degrees would look like, you know, much longer and more severe heat waves, much longer and more severe droughts and food shortages, like it would affect crop yields, um, especially in warmer climates, more intense storms and flooding, especially of like coastal cities, flooding of places like Tuvalu and like small island states that are already kind of uh, almost underwater, um, and the majority of coral reefs in the entire ocean being put at serious risk and by serious risk like they're already at serious risk so like pretty much say goodbye to the coral reefs and for like the heat extremes um two degrees celsius could actually mark like a, a shifting of the climate zone so like temperate areas can start to look more tropical in some places right people are worried that like you know trees and different species won't be able to migrate as fast as these zones are shifting because you know there's cities and stuff in the way and, and you know trees don't move that fast so um yeah so if that's two degrees celsius then you can bet that four degrees celsius is like ridiculous so extreme heat waves extreme food shortages extreme loss of habitat and biodiversity extreme you know devastation of the oceans ocean acidification like to the nth degree here is a chart from the ipcc and it's looking at um you know where we might be at 2100 so um alarmingly the red line is like if the status quo continues so this is basically the trajectory that we are on right now if we don't make significant changes and that is you know 3.2 to 5.4 degrees celsius some people are saying could be up to six um and yeah, that's pretty, pretty terrifying. So other scenarios obviously look at, you know, how long it's going to take us to reach our target. So like if we can start turning things around at 2020, I don't know about that, but if we can do that, then we'll be on the blue path, making significant, significant changes. We're already above 400 uh, parts per million. So uh, <laughs> yeah, and that could still get us to a two degrees Celsius increase. So I'm gonna end on a positive note and tell you how you can help right now to reduce your carbon footprint like a significant, a significant amount. And again, as I've already discussed, like I'm not saying that veganism is the answer and then we have to just, we can just stop there and we don't have to actually address capitalism or, you know, other systems of oppression. Like, no, I'm not saying veganism is like the be all end all answer, but reducing your meat consumption, especially your red meat consumption, is the best thing you can do to reduce your carbon footprint right now. For people who don't know why, um, meat production is the most unsustainable and inefficient thing in the entire world. Because first of all, you have to clear all this land space. So you're raising forests, which is which are carbon sinks. So you're getting rid of a carbon sink, and you are, you know, making these huge factory farms with all of these animals. These animals release methane. They release so much methane. And as we know, that that is a very, very potent greenhouse gas. Then you also have to cut down forests to grow crops to feed to the animals. And those crops could be going to feed hungry people worldwide, right? Animal agriculture is responsible for more greenhouse gas emissions than all of the trucks and transportation in the world combined. Land space used is just not sustainable at all. Um, in the US, 47% of land is dedicated to food production and 70% of that land is used to grow feed for cattle and only 1% of that land is actually used for you know food crops like vegetable crops that people actually consume. So water usage here, nearly half of all water used in the US goes to raising animals for food. It takes more than 2,400 gallons of water to produce one pound of meat. You'd save more water by not eating one pound of meat than you would by not taking a shower for six months. <laughs> These are real like, and like just some like meatless Monday stats. Um, if you eat one less burger per week, it's like taking your car off the road for 320 miles. If you skip, uh, if like your if your family skips red meat one day per week, it's like taking your car off the road for three months. So I'll stop there. I won't just like blast you with a million more stats.
And as I said, you know, like our reductions have to be significant and fast. And so I am not saying that we shouldn't like focus our attention on political economy. I am not saying that we shouldn't focus our attention on petitioning our leaders, on trying to force the green energy revolution like faster than it's going right now. Like, yes, definitely like focus a lot of your attention there, focus a lot of your activism there. But considering we have to make like we have to make these great changes so quickly, like yeah, just if you want to contribute, the best thing to do is just reduce your meat consumption even a little bit. That'll be great. Ren Hurst spent nearly 20 years carving out a successful career in the professional horse world before a radical shift in awareness caused her to change everything. She left behind everything she knew to create a sanctuary for the animals in her care, wrote a book about the experience, and continues to explore the depths of what she's uncovered about domestication and trauma. Through writing, teaching, mentoring, Ren helps human animals undomesticate their lives to heal the root cause of exploitation and suffering. Her first book is titled Riding on the Power of Others, A Horsewoman's Path to Unconditional Love. You can catch up with her current offerings at her Patreon, which is Render Me Wild. Thank you for joining us today on Animal Voices. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you. Well, thank you for having me, Leah. You on the West Coast? Yeah, I am <laughs> right in the middle of it. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's pretty rough. My best friend had to be evacuated and, um, you know, there's very real concerns around us, but you know, it's life and you just learn how to roll with it. I think we're pretty safe here and if we're not, we'll figure it out. <laughs> right. Okay, great. Can you please tell us a little bit about yourself and your experiences working with living with and or knowing horses? It's a very long answer to that. I started professionally training horses when I was 15 years old. And so I've got about a 20-year career in the professional horse world. And in that time, I had my toe in just about every area of that industry that you can imagine, from all aspects of horse care and training to several of the different disciplines and modalities, uh, embryo transfers and uh, reciprocal mares in the veterinary circles. Um, I mean, just about everything I've touched on from growing up rodeoing to um, evolving in a very parallel way with the natural horsemanship movement onto the liberty training movement and then eventually joining the Nefsarov Otokol school out of Russia and having a pretty radical shift in perspective around what horses are capable of understanding and what our relationship to them really is and can be. Well, do you want to start delving into what that realization was? What was that radical shift in understanding what horses were capable of? Well, it's it's pretty multifaceted, but what it boils down to is the school that I ended up in had a very radical approach to how to engage the horse in that no conditioning or training was involved. It was completely relationship-based without any means of manipulation or bribery outside of the container that you're the horse's guardian, the horse is in your care. Obviously, there is some influence that comes with that, but the primary thing we were taught in that school was how to recognize the subtlest no or the subtlest um, resistance from the horse and to honor that completely at all times in the education environment. And when you remove force and control and manipulation from the teaching dynamic, you get a pupil who is incredibly aware and able to communicate in ways that just aren't widely understood um, that animals are capable of. We were taught very practical, obvious things to look at on the surface, but it ends up being a very uh, subtle, energetic conversation that is actually really tangible in a lot of ways. And your sensitivity level just increases tenfold when you're not going to the horse with an expectation or an agenda or attachment to results. We taught the horses all sorts of things. They were self-motivated, though. So if the horse wasn't interested in it, we left it alone, but came up with all sorts of things to see what they did like to engage in and what was interesting for them with a primary role of their health and well-being and physical, I guess, wellness being the primary concern. So there was a really strong focus on anatomy and physiology and making sure that the horse was never asked to do anything that wasn't natural to their body or good for their body. But in terms of you know, mental uh, education, we taught them colors and shapes and different activities. Um, There are some students that have 
taught their horses how to read, and I use the word loosely, but the horses can answer using placards with letters on them. And I mean, you the way that we approached it was the same way you would approach a, a young child. And through that investigation and those experiences, I mean, my whole reality around what a horse is, what a horse is capable of was completely shattered. I mean, I taught my stallion that I was working with at the time how to differentiate between three different colors in less than 15 minutes with no positive reinforcement. So keep in mind, there's no treat giving involved in any of this education. It's very much disciplined in a way that you show up as the teacher. If the horse is engaged and wants to learn, then we follow the path as long as the horse is interested. And then we stop whenever the horse disengages. And so there was no system of reward or punishment. It was very much intrinsically motivated by what brought the horse to life and what the horse was interested in. And our primary role was to take care of them, make sure they were safe and give them a clean environment in which to expand. Wow, that's so interesting. So the goal you're saying then to the education with the horse is just to engage them in a way that is fulfilling for them? Yes. So what other kinds of education do you do with horses now? I don't. Oh. <laughs> I've, I've, yeah. I mean, once you go far enough down this path, you realize there is a much deeper conversation that needs to be had about our relationship to captive dependent animals. And so, no, once I realized what was possible and it totally shattered my reality, changed my life. I had other things going on way outside of the school that were also a part of why I changed, um, especially my own investigations into the true nature of love and what it is and what our responsibility is there. But um, no, I completely have lost interest in every capacity um, in needing to do those kinds of things with horses. And so today I just have, you know, all the horses that were from my past are still in my care. I have created and offer sanctuary to them. I care for them. We have deep, meaningful relationships, but they live a pretty natural existence and hang out with their own friends and have their own lives and things to do. And, um, you know, I still think there's a lot of value in what I learned in that school for people that have a very different circumstance than mine. But I have sacrificed a lot to be able to provide a much more natural world for these animals to play in. And so there's no real need to teach them those kinds of things. So what are other ways that you provide them rich and fulfilling lives? How do you well, I don't have to do much at all because I provide them an enormous amount of land to explore and they have a large herd that they live in. They have all sorts of their own, you know, dynamics and relationships that they're really fulfilled in. Um, they play with each other. You know, I care for them on a daily basis and they know that they can come to me if they need me, but I don't actually need to do a whole lot with them or for them unless it's necessary or needed um, in a caretaking sense. So you wrote a book called Riding on the Power of Others, A Horse Woman's Path to Unconditional Love. And you also speak to honoring the consent of horses. Can you tell us about how that relates to um, the harmful ways in which horses are used in our societies, whether for entertainment or work? Well, consent is a big topic. <laughs> um, a, a captive dependent cannot offer consent for their use. And so, and as a, as a result of the nature of their dependency, we don't need consent to take care of those that depend on us for their care, because they are literally an extension of us through their dependency. So if I need to take care of an animal, I don't need them to give me permission. That's my job as their caretaker. Anything above and beyond caretaking and their basic needs it, they aren't in a position to offer consent due to the power dynamic in the relationship for the very same reasons that human children can't offer consent for those things. And so there is no concept of consent for things that we want to do with animals. And I think people are very confused about that because no one's really looking at the power dynamics between somebody in a state of permanent captive dependency and the guardianship and the responsibility that comes with that. Um, to love somebody that's dependent on you is not to use them in any way, shape, or form. And when we get you know, really serious about looking at that, then we question, well, what is domestication? And how is that ever going to be in alignment with love? But people tend to think of domestication as biology when it's really the relationship we have to animals. And in the absence of exploitation, domestication isn't a harmful thing. But 
what it does lead to is an emotional maturation in the caregiver that creates a, no longer having a desire to create permanent captive dependency in others. And so the concept of consent, a lot of people use that as an excuse to take advantage of somebody's uh, dependency in that, you know, if I form um, a loving, trusting bond with an animal in my care and they say yes, to something like being ridden or whatever the thing case may be, then it's like I can use that as an excuse to take advantage of the fact that they depend on me. But our influence over them as caregivers is enormous. And so that consent piece is actually null and void when it comes to anything that we want to do that would be taking advantage of their position in our lives. And so that's a huge can of worms to open, but <laughs> that's kind of how I approach consent. It's like we're not looking for the yes, we're looking for the no so that we can honor and respect those in our care and give them the safest, most emotionally clean environment in which to live. You are listening to Animal Voices on Vancouver's Co-op Radio, 100.5 FM CFRO, 100% listener-sponsored radio broadcasting live from the east side on unceded Coast Salish territories. Just wondering what the moment was or if it was something that built over all those years being a part of the horse industry. Did you always feel an uneasiness with the consent or lack of consent or relationship you had with the horses? It was a process. I definitely did not grow up with an unease. I grew up from a pretty rough childhood and where a lot of trauma was present. And I, my relationship to horses was a way for me to cover that up and use it as a band-aid. And so I had shut myself off to a lot of the sensitivity that makes that clear. And as a natural result of me being somebody who strives to be, you know, good at the things that I do and be knowledgeable in the areas that I'm engaged in, as I learned more and did more, I just started questioning things more and more. And that started with, you know, putting shoes on horses or using bits in their mouths. As I needed less and less equipment, more and more became less true in that industry. And there was a culminating moment in I was already in the school that I mentioned, and I was working with this um, untrained stallion. And I had also just gone through a really hard heartbreak in my personal life and one that I really was having a hard time understanding because I really thought that I, I really loved this person. And I, one morning I was working with the stallion and kind of grieving that loss. And in a moment of him getting really, really um, excited and upset in the face of whatever I was going through in that moment. I just had this deep surrender of understanding of love is the very opposite of wanting someone to do or be anything other than what they are. And I totally dropped into my body in that moment and felt this grief of washing over me of that I had actually never experienced or given or offered truly unconditional love. And while I was in that embodied experience, the stallion dropped back down to the ground and very gently walked over to me and he put his head on my chest. And it was just in that moment that I really fully understood what love is and what love's not. And I could not go back from there. So he basically ruined my career in that moment. <laughs> and it's been a very, very long journey of figuring out, you know, how to take care of this many animals without the income that I used to produce from them. So how do you then um, support your sanctuary and all the animals in your care? Whatever I have to do. Uh, I work really hard. I've got about five different jobs. Um, I approach sanctuary very different than most people. Uh, I didn't always, but my evolution with sanctuary has been very similar to my evolution with horsemanship in that, you know, I just kept questioning things and kept feeling into, you know, intuitive impulses around what didn't feel right and what felt, you know, kind of icky. And um, I am finally reached the place where sanctuary as business is no longer in alignment for me. And it has to do with a lot of the emotional aspect of relating to animals that most people that start sanctuaries still have, I would say, a pretty unhealthy attachment to their relationships with animals as a means to regulate themselves and feel of worth and carve an identity around it. And so at some point I had to ask myself, 
why should it be anyone else's responsibility to pay for decisions I made to save these animals or to care for these animals? And I, instead, I started creating a body of work that I could share with the world and get paid for. And, you know, people know that I use the money I make to care for these animals, but nobody is supporting the sanctuary without going through what I'm offering them as a result of my own development and what I've created to, to offer reciprocally for that exchange. So you offer different types of work like your book. What other things do you offer for people on these topics? Yeah, well, the first book certainly explains where I came from and where it was starting to lead. But there's been an enormous amount of evolution since the end of Writing on the Power of Others. And so Writing on the Power of Others is kind of the prequel to to where we are now. And I'm finishing up uh, the next book, which is kind of the how-to, and it has the body of work and explains, you know, the practical relationship principles of of what this is and how to apply it in your life. But um, the primary way that I support the animals here is offering online teaching every week uh, on my Patreon, where I teach the principles of the work. But I've kind of moved more and more and more away from a focus on animals specifically, the more work I've done on myself. And now I'm working with at-risk youth. I actually have a traditional job in town working with a youth organization. And, um, you know, between those two things and personal coaching and consulting, and I volunteer as a court-appointed special advocate for youth in the foster care system. And then, you know, taking care of the animals here is kind of a full-time job too. You know, we just we just do what we can. But I've had to give up my old ideas of what life should look like. I've lived in a 8 by 12 renovated shack off the grid for the past four years in order to do this kind of stuff and take care of the animals uh, without relying on, you know, donations and things like that. And not that we won't graciously receive donations, but uh, we don't put that responsibility on the public. Um, I'm the one who ultimately decided to bring each and every one of these animals into my care. And so I've put that responsibility on myself to find ways to care for them. There's a sanctuary in Ontario that does the same thing. And I think a lot of sanctuaries tend to be like all about all the big animals, the cows, all this space, and everyone can come and take pictures with the animals. But they think that really detracts from the care and like... Yeah, I, I would agree with that. The ability of a sanctuary to be like committed to the, the length of lives that these animals have, because a lot of them, even horses, they live to be, what, in their mid-20s sometimes? More than that, if they're cared for well. Yeah. Wow, yeah. So, you know, it's really a lifelong commitment. And the the big change that I made, this, I guess the change happened um, just a few years ago where, you know, we had a more traditional kind of sanctuary environment where people could come and experience the horses and learn from that experience and all of that. And, you know, the more I started really understanding the depths of this, that just felt really not okay uh, for a lot of reasons. But, you know, the general public does not have access to these animals. These are dependents in my care. And just as if these were human children, I, I don't invite people just to come hang out for them for their own purposes. Or even if it even if it's helpful for them understanding, I think the responsibility for learning what this really is, is on each of us and should never be placed on these dependent animals who really just need us to care for them. And, you know, stop being the kind of humans that want to perpetuate domestication at all and and creating this permanent dependency that is not born from any sort of healthy, you know, mindset, honestly. So I'm really curious how people in the horse industry have responded to you maybe over the years with your work or now with your sanctuary if they think it's strange that you don't use the horses for any like, you know, entertainment or work or anything or if people are really open to the idea. It totally depends on how and why it is presented to them. The biggest challenge I've faced since writing that book has been from being exploited by the vegan community, to be honest. <laughs> so a lot of activists will take my name or my work and because they don't know anything about horses, and then they will use it to attack people. And, you know, then those people will come at me in a really aggressive way. And then I have to field that. And which is really difficult because, you know, we're not I'm not really in a position of any privilege out here. We're struggling just to get by. And we have been for a long time because I, I gave up everything. So when it's done that way, it's really painful on both ends. But when it's me presenting it, you know, if if people actually read my book, 
it so strongly says that our job is not to go and change other people's perspective. It is to inspire change by embodying what that change is. And that's not from a place of right and wrong. It's from a place of integrity. And, you know, inspiration is a natural result of integrity. But when you come at people and you tell them they're wrong or they should change their behavior and you have no understanding about trauma or understanding what trauma is or the fact that you can't just force somebody to change who has trauma, which is everyone on the planet, <laughs> because what we're dealing with is trauma as a nature of our own domestication, perpetuated by the domestication of others. And so it completely depends on how it's approached. If I love people and embrace them where they're at with no agenda or expectation for them to be different, then I find a lot of open-ended conversations can go around this. And especially if, you know, a connection is really formed, that really makes people super open to ideas. But I don't ever approach people trying to tell them, this is what I do. This is what you should do. This is the way the world should be. It's more like an invitation of I'm available if you want to explore this. But yeah, it's it's been a really challenging thing to have come into veganis, veganism from this understanding of connection and relationship just to have my story and my work be met with people who are projecting their suffering onto others and causing a lot of divisiveness and conflict. Um, but yeah, I've experienced it all. I mean, some people think it's totally insane. People think it's weird. And then I receive emails almost daily from all over the world of people who completely resonated with it, saw the truth in it, saw the similarities in their own path and and ended up, you know, kind of doing the same thing I did. So it's it's all across the board, but the motivation behind our actions really matters and, and really makes a difference with how it impacts people. I hadn't heard of your work when I was still involved with horses in an exploitative way. I had been riding them and working at barns for years as like a teen. And for me, it, I had gone vegan and I was not eating animals anymore. I remember putting the bit in, in someone's mouth and they were just yeah. like their neck, you know, when they just do that thing with like their neck is super high. Sure. And I was just like, why am I doing this? Like it just felt in that moment. It was just like, a, like why had that never felt wrong to me? Yeah. It's like such a weird thing to do. And it's, it's like so normalized. And it's like, oh, it doesn't hurt them. And it, they're just, they're okay with it because they have to be, but they really don't want to be in this situation. What you just said, we could apply to so many of us. I mean, and just the way we we are in the world. And I meet women, especially all the time, that have expressed their fear around horses. And they've been, you know, influenced and conditioned to push through that fear and, and do it anyway and, and ride the horse anyway. When that fear is almost always intuition that this doesn't feel right to be doing in my body. Our entire society and culture is designed to move people out of the relationship with their body so that, you know, we can be manipulated and controlled to, you know, purchase and spend and, and do all the things that take us out of our, you know, natural inner guidance of intuition and instinct. And um, yeah, so the work I do now just really helps people get back to that so that you're not having to listen to what other people are saying. You know what is true for you. Yeah. I have never met a horse who wasn't living in a situation of exploitation. Sure. And I know for me meeting like a turkey at a sanctuary that I was volunteering at, like the turkey just came right up, snuggled up next to me. And it was like a completely eye-opening experience. And I don't want to like exploit that turkey and say like she gave me this eye-opening experience. But I also know that one day I would love to like either care for horses or be in relation with horses who are living a life where they are fulfilled and not being used. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's an, it's a super inspiring experience for sure. And I mean, I used to use that experience to fund my sanctuary. And what this ultimately leads to is learning how to be in our bodies, be with our emotional processes, allow trauma to be resolved in the body. And then the more work you do on that front in yourself, the less desire we have to seek that out in those temporary connective ways. It's like I try to tell people a lot of my work is uh, very wilderness-based. I spend an enormous amount of time out in the wilderness and engaging with wild animals. And if you want to know what it's like to experience an animal that is fully free of exploitation, it's learn how to connect with, you know, the squirrels or the birds in your backyard without using food, without using any means of, you know, coercion or manipulation or abuses of power. And then you'll find a taste of what that is inside of you. 
but there's a it's a catch 22 with getting to interact with horses like this the more you interact with horses like this the more you fully understand that they shouldn't be <laughs> captive to begin with <laughs> and um there's an enormous grief that comes with being responsible for animals in a way that is not to serve you even emotionally because even with people who are obviously against the clear signs of abuse there is so much codependency and emotional enmeshment within the vegan community with animals in their care and to be really honest that is the you know worst form of abuse for a captive dependent to not be autonomous and sovereign in their own experiences and to be taking on the emotional burdens of their primary caregivers instead of, you know, having a model for what it's like to be emotionally mature. And so for a lot of cats and dogs in people's care, those animals seem happy, but they actually don't know how to stay fully rooted in their bodies because their caregivers are so often using them in order to feel better. And, you know, for a dependent, whether it's a cat, dog, horse, or a child, they absolutely need an emotionally mature caregiver in order to emotionally mature themselves. And, you know, that's kind of the nature of where my work has gone is try to teach people how to create those boundaries and heal that in themselves. I believe it's a human sickness. We have a we have a species that is not emotionally healthy enough to not want to create that exploitative environment and take advantage of of somebody's, you know, dependency on us. It's in the nature and the quality and in the motivation behind our interactions with them. Because the only absolute truth I've discovered on this path is that in each moment we're in relationship to anyone or anything. We're either coming from a place of love or we're coming from a place of fear. And fear is what results in exploitation. And so when you've got a cat, it's about having boundaries and making sure that you're available and healthy in your own self and in your own body to provide a present, loving, attentive space where you're self-aware and understanding that the cat is not here to make you feel okay about yourself in the world on any level. The cat is here because we created the cat and now the cat needs to be cared for. And there's a huge responsibility that comes from that. And most of us were not raised by conscious enough parents to have a model for what that's supposed to look like. And so the work that I actually teach now is the 13 principles I, you know, have learned how when applied in relationship, it doesn't really matter what kind of relationship, but especially in relationship to the animals in our care, it cleans all of that up and creates the space for not only us to heal in the space that's created from the animals, but it gives the animals a chance to heal. And they actually heal a lot quicker than us because they don't have the conceptual mind stuff going on to keep them out of their bodies. So it's it's a both and situation. The animal needs attentive caregiving, but the kind of attention we give them matters. Where are our boundaries and why are we touching them? Or have we learned how to listen to them when they say no? And do we have enough structure in our lives to tell them no when they're not asking for it for the right reasons? And do we have enough awareness to recognize that? So it's very difficult work. It's very complex. It's very nuanced and subtle. But there's a community of people practicing this now, and they blow me away every day with what they're figuring out and understanding. And, you know, the new book I'm writing actually has that in it. And hopefully that will help a lot of people understand what to do in those situations, because it is it's heartbreaking because what it is, it's a reflection of our own domestication and our own disconnect from our deeper selves and the idea here is to clean up the domestication in our lives so that we can live a more soul-centered life that is informed through, you know, inner guidance and emotion and not trauma, because most of us are being guided by trauma. And that's the sad reality of the human species right now. Wow, well, thank you so much for sharing all of that. Really appreciated all of the different kind of ways we went with that. So if people want to support your sanctuary work and the animals in your care. Is there a way they can do that, a website? Yeah, the best way to get involved in what I'm doing or learn it is to get on my Patreon. It's patreon.com slash rendermewild. Yeah, that's the best way to reach me. And then it, people can reach out to me directly through rendermewild at gmail.com. And I do have a Facebook and an Instagram and I do respond on there. I'm just not posting very much lately. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Thanks again for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate the time. Vegan food is made just right for you and me. Nothing fancy, just good food. Loving food made 
the way it should be Size makes it good Size Vegan Bistro in the Seven Oaks Mall, Abbotsford Order online, S-Y-S, veganbistro.com You've been listening to Animal Voices here on 100.5 FM CFRO, Vancouver Co-op Radio on unceded and ancestral Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh territories in so-called Vancouver, British Columbia. Join us next Friday, September 25th, for another show with wonderful original content. Now we'll leave you with the song, Mercy, Mercy Me, The Ecology by Marvin Gaye. Thank you for listening to Animal Voices, and remember to be kind to the animals. Whoa, oh, mercy, mercy me. All things ain't what they used to be. No, no. Where did all the blue skies go? Poison is the wind that blows from the north and south and east. Whoa, mercy, mercy me. All things ain't what they used to be. No, no. Oil wasted on the oceans and upon our seas, fish full of mercury. Oh, oh, mercy, mercy me. Ah, things ain't what they used to be. No, no. Radiation underground and in the sky. Animals and birds who live nearby are dying. Mercy, mercy, me. All things ain't what they used to be. What about this overcrowded land? How much more abuse from man? Can she stand there? Hey.